This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. We are watching the spread of the COVID-19 Delta variant locally, nationally, and globally. This morning, we hear from Tim Brown, senior fellow in the research program at the East-West Center. Brown, who's an epidemiologist, will be featured in a webinar this afternoon to go over what you need to know about the Delta variant. Here's Brown. Fundamentally, you know, Delta has literally changed the game with this because it has increased its transmissibility so much that it's very, very easily transmitted right now. So in a lot of countries where previous levels of masking and social distancing were being effective, for example, in Taiwan or Thailand, uh, we are now seeing major outbreaks of COVID because of the Delta variant. China is on the verge of reevaluating its approach of really trying to completely contain and lock down this virus because they're now seeing outbreaks in about half of their provinces. Uh, they managed to control the initial one in Guangdong uh, several months ago and did that very effectively, but they had to test over 30 million people in doing that. And now they are seeing it spread uh, more widely across the country, and they're very, very concerned at this point. So this one really has changed the game. Yeah, I mean, early on, you know, we saw how it came in the back door. Everybody was looking toward Asia, and yet it came in the back door from Italy, and we saw what it did over there early on. Right. Well, I think, you know, the, to put Delta in context, you know, there really have been four waves of COVID viruses. The first was the Wuhan strain, uh, the original one coming from China. The second was a mutation that occurred in early 2020 called P614G, which spread across the world again in two to three months. And then shortly after Christmas, we had Alpha, which increased its infectivity again and basically uh spread initially in the UK, then to Europe, and then basically from there to the rest of the world. And Alpha was just kind of getting a foothold, for example, in many places in Asia and so on, when Delta came along. And of course, Delta initially evolved in India, but then, again, following Alpha's sort of track, it basically started spreading very rapidly within the UK first. Now it's spreading throughout Europe. We're seeing, of course, it's, it's now 93% of infections in the United States, according to CDC today. So it really has, you know, changed the game and taken over the COVID market on a global scale. And so as an epidemiologist, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. What's your comfort level about going outdoors? I mean, I don't know if you're vaccinated or not. I mean, you're still wearing masks. Uh, my fundamental advice at this point is, number one, if you're not vaccinated, you better get vaccinated and get vaccinated fast because it takes the vaccine's time to take hold. After your initial shot, you know, you need three weeks until you get the second one, and then you need a full two weeks after the second shot before your full immunity is kicked in. And the other advice I have is wear a mask whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. We are seeing increasing numbers of major outbreaks among vaccinated individuals. Uh, these are showing up in the media on a regular basis, but they were already being observed two to three months ago in healthcare workers in places like India. And many of those were super spreader events. So we are very concerned that with this one, just vaccination alone may not prevent you from transmitting further. And, you know, we have seen, you know, the guidelines change, right, uh, from mass indoors, no mass outdoors, uh, unless you're in a super spreader kind of event. But uh, I guess it just wouldn't hurt to have that mask on. Whatever you my, do. my fundamental advice at this point is mask if you're indoors, absolutely. If you're outdoors and far away from everybody, uh, doesn't really matter if you have a mask on. But if you're within six feet of somebody, I would be masking. The viral loads associated with this variant are a thousand times what they were with the previous wild-type variants, with the original COVID virus. And what that means is that people who get infected with this, even if they are vaxxed, are much more infectious to other people. And, you know, one of the startling findings that CDC came up with last week, which was not startling to those of us who've been following this for some time, is that the viral loads, the level of virus in people who are vaxxed and people who are unvaxxed with Delta is very similar for about the first week of infection. After that, the vaxxed people drop off very quickly once their secondary immune response kicks in. And so they're probably less infectious after that. But in that first week, they are probably every bit as infectious as unvaxxed people. And that's something we really need to take into account when we're trying to deal with this. 
and that means masking is mandatory. It's not, it's not an option anymore unless you are willing to contract the virus and then potentially take it home and spread it to other family members. It's far more contagious, so potentially more dangerous if you're not vaccinated. Exactly. And the other major issue that's increasingly coming across is that our vaccines are waning in efficiency against Delta over time. Uh, the initial studies we saw coming out of the UK saw only a minor reduction from about like 93% down to about 88%, so five or six point reduction in effectiveness. But then we started seeing reports coming out of Israel of 64, 69 out of Singapore. More recently, 39 out of Israel this morning, literally in the paper, you will see a 50% number against COVID infection coming out of the UK. So fundamentally, the vaccines are getting less effective over time against Delta. And that means even if you are vaccinated, your probability of getting infected will go up. So again, even if you're vaccinated, wear a mask. And, you know, we are hearing about the potential need for a booster shot. Well, I think, you know, one, one of the important things to stress is the vaccines are not really reducing in effectiveness against serious illness and hospitalization. Those numbers are holding up very well, even in the Israeli data over time. So even people who are vaccinated six months ago are still showing very good resistance to hospitalization and severe illness. So they are getting mild infections when they do get infected. Where it's weaker is basically on the preventions or on the transmission side. You know, it's, it's not protecting you as well against getting infected in the first place or from transmitting on. And so that means that, yes, you have more probability of getting infected. You have more probability of being transmitted. You probably will not end up in the hospital if you have been vaccinated. And that's why the two pieces of advice need to be get your vaccine and wear your mask. Both of those are absolutely essential in the, in the current situation. Germany has now gone to starting some booster shots. And so I do think this will be an increasing trend that we're going to see across countries. And as you look across the globe, uh, what's the snapshot for children? Children are susceptible to Delta. In the UK, they are. Actually, the ages from basically 10 to 29 have shown the highest infection rates in the United Kingdom. So definitely it is a major issue for children. Uh, the higher infectivity means that in school settings, again, if they are not well-masked, distance, and the ventilation is not good, the potential for infection can be quite high. So I think we have to be very, very concerned. And I think, you know, the other piece of advice is we need to up our masking as well. We should be seriously thinking about double masking or using N95s because this one is just that much more contagious. And as the kids are just back in school this week? I would be concerned. If I had kids, I probably would not be sending them to school right now, given that we are still seeing very rapid growth in the community spread here on Oahu. I'm sure you've seen the case numbers. We basically are now at 382 for the seven-day average, which is above our 250 peak from last July. So we are skyrocketing above where we were last July, and there's no sign of slowdown. The trajectory is still very sharply up. Even though we have the vaccines as a weapon in this war against COVID-19, do you think with the Delta variant that it's just more dangerous now? I think it is more dangerous because just this, this higher transmissibility cannot be underestimated. I mean, this is up at the level of transmissibility as chickenpox, which, as we all know, is extremely contagious. Okay, so imagine putting a group of children in school with chickenpox without the vaccines. It would be the same as putting them in school with COVID right now. So I think, you know, we need to be very, very cautious on this. We need to remember that 135,000 of the 180,000 children in school here in Hawaii are not vaccinated at this point. The vaccine is not available to those under age 12, and only about 60% of those age 12 to 17 have received the vaccine here. So we're talking about a largely unvaccinated population in the schools. I would hope that all the instructors are vaccinated, although I don't think we can guarantee this at this point. And so, you know, there is serious potential there. So Again, if you know, I hope the governor is correct that these guidelines are strong enough for the schools. But honestly, if we start to see outbreaks in the schools by the end of this week or in the next couple of weeks, we need to be very, very concerned and reevaluate where we are. 
Want to learn more? Epidemiologist Tim Brown will be featured in a special webinar from 2 to 3 this afternoon. It's titled, Living in the Shadow of Delta, the Virus Strikes Back. Head to our website for links to register. It is now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Mayor Rick Mangiardi announced Oahu will begin limiting social gatherings to groups of 25 outdoors and 10 indoors. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. You know, when I saw this, I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. You know. Yeah, here here we go again. Uh, Or, uh, You know, we should say, and that was quite a sobering report, by the way, from Tim Brown, this story from Cassie Ordonio, she's one of our reporters. It is the number one story at civilbeat.org right now for good reason because this is something that affects everybody. It's the number one story by far. And this also represents, if in fact these new restrictions on social gatherings go into effect, a, a step backwards uh, from the Tier 5 status that we currently are. Uh, remember, currently we're allowed 75 people outdoors for social gatherings. 25 indoors. So to go to 25 and 10, respectively, will cause a dramatic change uh, in people's behavior or hopefully will have an effect. Uh, The mayor says, by the way, that he met with Governor Eve Gay and uh, the health director, Libby Char, yesterday, and he told the council about this late yesterday. He believes that this is due to community spread among the unvaccinated uh, getting together at gatherings. Yeah, you know, we did have the governor on the show, uh, and, uh, you know, I asked about uh, the mandatory vaccines and the policy, and he said there would be an announcement out this week, uh, and he also said, or maybe sooner. <laughs> and yeah, I, uh, in fact, <laughs> we maybe can today. give an update there. Yeah, this this is one of those stories that is, is changing uh, by the minute. Uh, there is a press conference scheduled for 1 p.m. today. It does include uh, three of the four county mayors, including Mayor Blangiardi, uh, Director Char, the governor, obviously, the interim Department of Education director, Keith Ayashi, as well. The title uh, is somewhat vague, the latest COVID-19 emergency proclamation. But Hawaii News Now is reporting, and they're our media partner, that one of the things that's likely to come out, probably the main order of business, is ordering all state and county workers to get vaccinated Uh, or else pay for weekly testing to demonstrate that they don't have COVID. This could go into effect as early as next week. Uh, Again, uh, we don't know when either these mandates will go uh, into effect this week or next, or the social gathering orders. But um, this is all a moving target. Uh, Events are developing very rapidly. Yeah, you know, I just, before the show started, I got off the phone with HGA, and they said, oh, there's a news conference that all the government unions are holding, probably around 2.30, after the governor's news conference, to react to whatever he's saying. So, uh, yeah, something's up. Things are moving fast. Uh, Lots of developments that people need to pay attention to today. Right, right. That's United Public Workers, the Hawaii State Teachers Association, the Hawaii Government Employees Association, and the... Uh, UH Professional Assembly. There has been resistance on the part of the unions nationally uh, to have this kind of requirement, but we also know the news of the day, 655 new cases. That is the highest single day, right, since this pandemic began here in Hawaii back in March uh, 2020. Seems like forever ago, but um, this is a a new development that's forcing forcing our government officials Uh, to respond. Yes, and just uh, a little while ago, the uh, House of Representatives put out a news release saying that they're requiring uh, vaccines for all their staff as well. Right, that's coming from Speaker Scott Scott Psyche. I would imagine that Senate President Ron Kochi might well be thinking uh, as well. Uh, Of course, if the governor does order uh, this requirement, that would cover everybody that's in state government, uh, elected officials, staff there at the Capitol, uh, other offices as well. So we appear to be shifting into a very, not appear, we are clearly entering a new phase of COVID-19 led by the Delta variant. And of course, this is happening nationally as well as globally. Right. And so, yeah, as we just heard uh, epidemiologist uh, Tim Brown talk about it, we've turned the corner here. 
uh, we're in new territory, and yeah, we just have to be vigilant and and watch to see what happens in the schools, right, over the next yeah, week exactly. or so. Exactly. Um, but yeah, moving target today. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Chad Blair, politics and opinion editor with today's Reality Check. To read more about the Oahu restrictions as this story develops, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kahala Market by Foodland. Throughout August, offering the shopping experience, It's All Rice, featuring locally made rice finds and rice dishes from cultures near and far. KahalaMKT.com Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Priscilla Stuckey, author of Kissed by a Fox. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about exploring our relationship with the natural world. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to Homa Summer Nights with live music, bites, beverages, and art-making workshops on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9. HonoluluMuseum.org Environmental Protection Agency is funding a biotech project to try and curb mosquito-borne diseases here in the islands. Next month, UC San Diego researcher Omar Akbari will travel to the Big Island to lay the groundwork for a $750,000 project to hopefully produce lab-generated sterile mosquitoes of the Aedes aegypti variety. These day biters are vectors that carry diseases like dengue and Zika. And Akbari hopes to use gene editing to one day knock down their populations here in Hawaii. Here's Akbari. Our lab has developed one of the newest technologies for generating sterile mosquitoes. And we're using the CRISPR technology, which is a technology that was awarded the Nobel Prize last year. Yes. Um, we're using that technology. Uh, and the person that got the Nobel Prize is actually Jennifer Downa from Hawaii. Yes, from um, Hilo. Originally, from Hilo, Hawaii. So we're using her technology in mosquitoes. And we've generated a method where we could actually generate sterile male mosquitoes at scale, and we can deploy them at the egg stage. So it really logistically enables easy movement of the eggs to the field site, and the eggs then can be hatched directly in water, and only a sterile male will survive. And when they survive, they'll, they'll find the females out in the wild, and they'll mate with them, and they'll suppress the population. So it's utilizing the sterile insect technique, which is one of the most successful techniques for controlling insects in the wild. So it's relying on that method, but it's using sort of a new technology of CRISPR to generate sterile males and to be able to deploy them as eggs. So are you sending those sterile eggs over here to Hawaii? Well, we would like to do that, but the purpose of this EPA proposal that we, we got funding for is really to, to just assess the risk. We want to understand, you know, what is the density of the Aedes aegypti population in parts of Kauai and collecting ecological data, looking at biotic and abiotic environmental data, and then feeding that all into mathematical models to enable us to assess the risk of the technology with the hope that, you know, one day in the future we'll be able to use this technology potentially. Of course, you know, we would have to seek out regulatory approval and get public acceptance and things like that. But the technology we developed is extremely safe, and we think it has the, the capacity to actually reduce, potentially even eliminate this major disease vector from, from the islands. Right. And, and for our listeners who don't know, I mean, Aedes aegypti mosquitoes are the carriers of dengue and chikungunya and the Zika fever. Exactly. Yeah, they are the prime vector of those viruses. And, and so if we were to remove the mosquito from the environment, then we could prevent transmission of those pathogens. Now, we're having an issue here where the birds 
are dying because they're getting bitten by mosquitoes and uh, you know the mosquitoes are creeping higher and higher up in the elevation and threatening a lot of our our native birds but maybe the idea is that something could be worked out that would help the bird population too right yeah i mean that problem is primarily a different sector it's the culex q mosquito mm-hmm. which transmits avian malaria the technology that we have developed can be also developed in that disease vector in the future and that could provide a method for removing that species and protecting the birds. But you start with Aedes aegypti and see where this work goes then. Exactly. Yeah, one species at a time, but Aedes aegypti is a really bad one. You know, it lives in our homes. It breeds in very small containers. It bites during the day. It transmits so many different viruses. It's a nasty mosquito for sure. And I think because of that, we, we decided to target that one first. But again, the technology is portable. We can build it in many different mosquito disease vectors and revolutionize how mosquitoes are controlled. And, and really, right now, people rely heavily on insecticides to control mosquitoes, which are very harmful to the ecosystem. So if we can reduce our reliance on harmful insecticides, and mosquitoes are also evolving resistance to those insecticides. So if we're putting out these, these harmful chemicals. They're not really working very well anymore, and they're causing ecological damage. We, we really need new technologies, and, and these genetic approaches are extremely safe, and they've been well filed for over 50 years, the sterile insect technique, for example. And the new engineered methods are also being trialed in the field with great success. So I think it's time to start really thinking about the use of, of these genetic approaches to enable the species to control itself, right? You release these sterile males, and they'll find the females on their own, and they'll suppress the population. And I think that is the most efficient and effective and, and safe way of controlling these, these major problems. So what got you interested in these types of mosquitoes and, you know, the mosquito population here in Hawaii? I mean, I got really interested in mosquitoes when I was doing my undergraduate work at the University of Nevada in Reno. And they had a, they have a pretty big mosquito problem there, too. I actually was an intern, a vector control intern where I did field work. I did that for four summers. I did everything from surveillance. I had my own sentinel chicken flocks that I would I would take blood from them uh, once every two weeks and, and test them for West Nile virus and St. Louis encephalitis. I also participated in insecticide treatments with helicopters and also just manual briquettes, you know, dropping them in storm drains. Um, and I, I really realized, you know, how expensive that, that method is and how nonspecific it is and inefficient it is. You know, we were we were using helicopters to, to deploy insecticides, and while we were able to, you know, reduce the mosquito population, we were never able to get rid of it. You know, it, it was always there, and it, it just came, after, you know, after the application's over, the population just bounced right back. So I knew something, you know, more sustainable needed to be developed um, just from my hands-on work, working in the field. So that got me really interested in mosquitoes. And and in Hawaii, I think Hawaii, you know, islands in general are a great place to trial some of these technologies because they're, you know, isolated ecosystems. You don't have as much genetic diversity, and, and it enables you really to to do a trial and determine the efficacy of the trial in a very safe and effective way. And I think that's that's you know part of the reason why. And then also the fact that in Hawaii, you do have you know occasional dengue transmission, for example, and you do also have Aedes aegypti um, mosquitoes there. So you have this threat that's sitting there that needs to be dealt with, and we have a technology that could potentially you know, deal with it and, and solve the problem. And so I think it's a great opportunity to, to trial uh, the technology at some point in the future. And I don't know if, you, if you've had any opportunity to study the mosquitoes, the, the populations here out in the field? I haven't myself, but my collaborator, Yusik Lee, who's also on this proposal, she's a, actually an assistant professor at the University of Florida. She actually has done hands-on work in Hawaii uh, studying the mosquito populations there. So she's actually on our team to, to help lead some of the work there. There's a couple field locations near Kona that where they've actually found populations of aegypti in abundance. And so we thought those would be optimal sites, and, and that's also where we see occasional dengue transmission. So you put all those together, and, and I feel like that's that's a good a good place to start. You've gotten this funding now, uh, thanks to the EPA. How far out, you know, does this cover uh, your you know your research? 
the the funding I believe is for three years, so it'll it'll give us you know some time to to actually do some. We're going to do some collections near Kona. With those collections, we're going to sequence our genomes. We're going to determine the density and the dispersal capacity of the mosquitoes, and all that data will be fed into mathematical models, which will enable us to predict how how our system would would behave if if it were released and. And, th- and those models will help, you know, regulatory bodies like the EPA sort of look at, you know, the risks of, of the technology, do risk assessments, and decide if, if they want to go forward with such a technology. But, you know, that's going to be many years away. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're really just in the initial stages of, of just really surveying and, and doing some, um, you know, just some collections and, and determining, um, you know, how this could potentially work. So just releasing sterile insects is, is a very powerful way of controlling a species, and that's what we would like to do here. But the way we're sterilizing them is just using a newer technology that, that's not radiation-based. Um, radiation, what that is, is, is basically you take the males and then you irradiate them, and, and it's very harmful to them, and, and so they're not as fit. Um, although, it, you know, it can work, but, you know, you're, you're really reducing the, the likelihood that those males are going to survive and mate and suppress. So... Our technology is a lot more specific, and it's, it's, and it's it works by using the CRISPR technology to to only target specific genes that are important for male fertility or female viability, and which enables us to 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 generate these sterile males. Yeah, no, um, it, it, it's just it's interesting, and and it's really nice to see uh, that you're using the CRISPR technology. Uh, I know Jennifer would probably it would make her smile. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, it's a very powerful technology, and it's being used for a lot of things now. I feel like it's gonna it's gonna make a huge impact on the world, and and this is an example where it could make a big impact in Hawaii. That was Omar Akbari. He's a professor of cell and developmental biology at UC San Diego. He was talking to us about his research on sterile mosquitoes on a project here in the islands that has been funded through a new grant from the EPA. As we continue our Mauka de Makai watch, we can tell you that the MOP has left its mark. MOP stands for Marine Option Program, and it celebrates 50 years since its inception, thanks to co-founders John Craven and Jack Davidson. The University of Hawaii undergraduate program has managed to graduate students who have gone on to lead many marine, federal, state, and nonprofit agencies. We talked to Director Cynthia Hunter about the success of this incubator for marine researchers. 50 years. We think that we're the longest continuous program at at UH. And you're right, the program was started by Dr. Craven, a visionary in so many ways. And it's had its ups and downs in terms of funding and, uh, you know, but we've persevered. And we have usually a couple of hundred students at Manoa and a couple hundred more throughout the state who participate in the program on their campuses. And share with our listeners, I mean, what's your mission? So it's a formal certificate program. That means the students do a little bit extra to get a certificate that goes on their diploma. But what it's all about, our tagline is educating tomorrow's ocean leaders. So we introduce the students to people and programs and career opportunities around the state, get them behind the scenes, um, and let them see the actual uh, footsteps that others have taken to get to successful and happy careers. So you say, this is what it takes to get there. This is the kind of the roadmap, and you get them on their way. Exactly. So we have a formula for success, and it's really simple. Show up early if you can. Work a little harder and do it with a smile. Be the person that you would like to work with, and it's that simple. Our grads are renowned for being 
the kind of person that you'd like to work with, the kind of person that you'd like to hire. And they snap up jobs at the state, federal government, NGOs, private business, schools, universities. And they are across the state and across the country now. Give us an example. Like, uh, who are some of your graduates that are working now? A couple of our famous ones are Athleen Clark, who is the superintendent of Papahanao Mokuakea Marine National Monument, and Dr. Randy Kosaki, who is the assistant superintendent of research for the monument as well. And there are literally dozens of our alums who work for NOAA, and many, many who also work at for the state, the LNR in particular. So they're, they're basically working at jobs that they love, I guess, huh? We hope so. That's the whole point. And also jobs that make a difference. Every student that you talk to at university today sees the challenges ahead and wants to do their part to, to really make a difference on the ground. And this program helps prepare them to do that. Give us a little thumbnail sketch. I mean, how long would these classes run? What does the training involve? Yeah. Right. Well, the students design their own program, so they take an additional three or four courses in anything that's ocean-related at any of the campuses. And then the, the hallmark is that they do a skill project. So they find a mentor. We help them find a mentor. And it can be anything from working on uh snails to whales. So they, they volunteer during this internship, unpaid, and they get to know the people. Sometimes they find out that they really don't love being out on an oceanographic vessel for weeks at a time. <laughs> so they, they redirect their energy in the future. Other times they find out that that's exactly what they want to do next. So it helps students focus as well as prepare them for success. They can try different things. They can find what their passion is. Yes, exactly. So what's your passion? I'm a coral reef ecologist. I love to study coral reproduction and health and how they respond to stressors. So I love getting students in the water. That's something else that we, we do well is help students get their feet wet. I had the opportunity to help out in a coral spawning project over there at Coconut Island, and, and I was thoroughly impressed at the research that's underway here in Hawaii. Isn't it exciting and, and ongoing? I was just over there a couple of weeks ago, and as we pulled into the island, you could smell that the corals had spawned the night before. It's a very interesting, potent smell in the air after corals have spawned. Can there. they freeze their sperm? in hopes that we can learn more in the future to help us restore reefs and find the most uh, g genetically the strongest corals to, to use for restoration projects. And that's important, too, because we've got climate change, ocean warming, rising sea level temperatures, you know, and so, yeah, how do, how do these species continue, you know, with all these stressors? Exactly. Exactly. All of that, Catherine. It's so important. And it takes people on the ground to help do these studies. It takes a lot of people. So there are many, many opportunities for students to get involved in coral spawning or uh, coral ecology. There's opportunities with the state's coral nursery over on Sand Island. You know, we often hear about the coral bleaching because our waters get too hot you know, uh, August, September, October. You know, there's always that worry that they won't bounce back. Absolutely. And we are expecting uh, coral bleaching this year, probably September, uh, October, when our w waters are the warmest. So we have an initiated ex experiments and, and monitoring programs around the state. There are a couple of groups that meet regularly to talk about what the future risks are and what we can do about it. So if there's a listener out there that maybe has an interest in marine science and wants to maybe somehow take part in this marine option program, how do they go about that? Right. Well, this is part of the University of Hawaii system. Any campus has a, a coordinator, a MOP, Marine Option Program coordinator, who will talk to you. It's great when students come in early as freshmen, but we accept students at any part of their um, undergraduate careers. So get a hold of the campus coordinator, come in and to the mop shop or set up an appointment online. 
we're all Zoom all the time right now, but um, we'd be happy to talk to them. And I guess as you reflect back over 50 years, I don't know, are there any projects that stand out? Oh, gosh. Uh, the Marine Option Program has taken the lead in several maritime archaeology projects around the state, as well as surveying the reefs uh, and contributing to the um, ocean atlases for all of the islands, the coral reef atlases for all of the islands. And there are, there are many, many more. Now, I don't know what projects may have been on hold because of COVID. You know, how has that yeah. impacted your program? It really has slowed things down for these in-water training programs. There's another course at UH Hilo. It's called Quest, Quantitative Underwater Ecological Surveying Techniques. And it's been on hold the last two summers because ordinarily students would be camping on the beach and spending their days together in the water. We're optimistic that things will get better if everyone gets vaccinated and keeps their masks on right now. Uh, I don't know. Anything else that you want to underscore just as you reflect back on the 50 years? We're excited to see each incoming school year brings a fresh bunch of students from all over the mainland, all over Hawaii, who are interested in the ocean. And these, these students are our future. As you mentioned, with climate change and, and global warming and all of the stressors on reefs today and uh, nurse shore ecosystems today, we need these students to be the best they can be. That was Cynthia Hunter, director of the University of Hawaii's Marine Option Program. More than 2,000 students have gone through the certificate program in the last 50 years. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration on Oahu, Maui, Hawaii Island, and Kauai, celebrating 60 years, featuring Daikin air conditioners. Learn more about Daikin at CostcoHawaii.com. You're an HPR listener, which means you're smart and you care about the future of this station. We want to know your thoughts. How can we serve you better? What would you like to see more of? We're currently conducting our audience survey. We'd love your input. Check your email inbox for the invitation or head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org survey. It means a lot to us and as always, mahalo for your support. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by assisting local food bank networks on Oahu and the neighbor islands. Matson.com. City Council is expected to take up the future of the Haiku Stairs this month. We've been taking the time to explore the history behind the Kapu Stairway to Heaven. We heard about the Coast Guard's history tied to, to the stairs yesterday, and today we learn about how the Friends of the Haiku Stairs was first formed. Many mayors and city and state lawmakers have come and gone over three decades, but this grassroots group has persevered turning over options from different access points to land swaps to having a private operator manage the stairs. Kanye resident John Flanagan recalled that back in the 80s, he, he saw a letter to the editor in the newspaper from a man who wanted anyone interested in keeping the access open to call him. Flanagan did. So I called him up. I was interested and wondered because I thought I was teaching over at Hawaii Loa College at the time. And I said, I can, if we want to get together, I can manage to f get a room for you. We can meet over there with the room. So he said, okay, that's a good idea. So we publicized that, and there was a huge amount of interest. So we had our meetings over there, and 
the Friends of Accurate Stairs got started. And we, we publicized it. There was a paper inviting people that were interested to show up. And, boy, we had, we had about 50 people there, including several legislators. And Abercrombie came to the meeting. Neil Abercrombie, mm-hmm. yeah, former he, governor. Yeah, he, he made some of the recommendations. But it was his idea, for example, we should apply to the senator in Illinois to see if we could get recognition as a national monument and that kind of thing. He instigated a whole lot of activity that we did. The stairs were a really, really, really popular, safe hike. You know, we had mothers carrying babies up on their backs, which I thought was pretty stupid, but but that's how safe everybody felt it was. You know, got solid steps and railings to hold on to, so there was nothing dangerous about it. Well, it's dangerous in the sense that walking down your steps in the in the house or crossing the street is dangerous. If you do stupid things, and you can get hurt. But there's nothing intrinsically unusual about it. And it was so popular that there were letters to the editor and comments by everybody. And so it was pretty easy to gin up a lot of local interest. And then when uh, Jeremy Harris decided that he would get this, because the land was still up for grabs. And Jeremy was hoping that the city could could get the whole area there, you know, and make a park out of it. He, he had some really great plans for it. And he also planned on doing the, the repair because it had been sitting there since 1955 without any care. Even though it had been there that long, it was still quite solid. There were some places that had sunk down and changed, and there were a couple of places we had to walk around, sections that had tilted over. But it was still solid. You could climb up there, and everything felt like it was going to stay there. You'd, there was no sense that it was dangerous. When he contracted to get it repaired, I was kind of shocked at the amount that was estimated. They said it was going to cost $850,000, and I thought, oh, man, I don't know whether we can talk people into spending that kind of money for it. But then I found out, I didn't find out, but other others investigated things, and I learned that it was eligible for something called the Transportation Efficiency Act for, for eligible uh, activities. They would refund 80% of the cost of the repair. So I thought, oh, well, $850,000 is fine if, if we get 80% of it back. That's pretty easy to justify working for. Well, then we found out later, I found out later years, <laughs> nobody ever applied for the restitution. Nobody ever made the application for the 80%, so I, I don't know how that happened. Oh, wow. So who was supposed to do that, the city? Well, somebody in the city. At that time, I was very, I was still very casually involved. You know, I, I had no deep understanding of what was going on, and I didn't know the people. I was just a professor over at the college, you know, kind of academically isolated from politics and that kind of stuff. Originally, we had we had a path going up there. We would just walk right up through the Coast Guard station up to the stairs and not bother anybody, and nobody even noticed that that we were doing it. But then when uh, DHHL took over. They closed that off so that the safe access to the stairs was not available anymore. And so hikers being hikers, they found ways to get around that, which very often, unfortunately, involved trespassing on other people's property. I'm looking at uh, the headline for a Star Bulletin story. It says, Stairway to Heaven is Hell for Residents. Yeah, it was. And, and, and we felt like we were working with the residents in trying to get it back open with a safe access so that the people wouldn't be going through their property anymore. And, and we worked on that. That was one of our main ideas. And I recall that uh, the Department of Transportation has a kind of a bypass road. I think it was used for the construction workers as they were right. building the H3. Uh, and I, I know at the time, many people were uh, clamoring for that to be opened up as a recreational area. But uh, Right. Uh, I, I don't think the state was real keen on that. Well, that road came off of Likilike. And then when they finished the construction, they bulldozed the area, the beginning part of that, just and closed it off. So there was no way to get on there. There were people who lived in the neighborhood who would go up there and hike. When we'd go up there on our work days sometimes, there'd be mothers up there pushing their baby carriages and there was one kid that used to ride his moped back and forth on it. and It was a recreational area for the local people. But they were kind of annoyed when non-local people started using it. You know, that's understandable. 
And, you know, over the years, there were other access plans, right? Um, I see another article here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Windward Community College, state hospital access. We took that seriously enough that uh, Ben Lee was the mayor's assistant. The managing director, yes. Manager director. He, he had a bunch of people, and we did a survey there. We walked up there and walked through the path that uh, was being recommended. It looked quite possible, and the chancellor of the college said, oh, yeah, that'd be fine. That wouldn't be any trouble to us. The idea that was we could park down there in the parking lot that they had and, and walk up past. We'd walk through the campus just for a few, just maybe for a couple of hundred yards, and then there was a possible path that would go up between the campus, the gully that separated the campus from the housing area over on the other side. So that was that was one of the possibilities. They did also talk about you know possible land swaps, right? That was a big deal. We thought that was going to happen. They, they actually, I've I've even got a copy of the legal uh, document of the land swap. But a couple of things happened. One was the decision on the Sacred Falls about that time. That was a fatal rock right. fall. The, the state lost. And surprised everybody. Nobody thought the state was going to lose that, and I still don't think they should have. And I've seen a lot of lawyers commenting how wrong it was for the state not to appeal that decision. But anyway, that that scared the the corporate counsels and made them gun shy. And meanwhile, some of the people who lived in the neighborhood had quite a lot of political clout, and they got organized and started working on people. But the, the idea was that if we can make the haiku stairs unpopular, because at that point, you know, every, everybody practically was willing to get it open. But all of a sudden, the police started arresting people and the, and the, uh, the fire department, and they would report to the police about rescues on the haiku stairs. Well, there were no rescues on the haiku stairs, but that's the way it was labeled in the paper. And so over over the years, all of these labelings about all oh, how dangerous the haiku stairs is. We've even had people testify. Oh, I stood in my backyard and watched the helicopters lift people up off of the people that fell off the stairs. Of course, it's all nonsense. It's not true, but it worked. Mm. And the the stairs started becoming a, an object of disapproval because it was so dangerous and and. It was a possible source of liability for anybody yeah. that was running it. it. It became an attractive nuisance. Right. But the, effect, the fact that people had been climbing it for eight years under the Coast Guard, unsupervised, just had it open, never anybody reported a serious injury, never anybody got lost or had a rescue, never in all that time. I recall, though, that the friends you know, really worked to volunteer to try and help maintain the area, you know, in the trails. When Harris finally had let a contract for the repair and they were going to start working, we decided we could help that by building a trail so that the workers had a way of getting up there without having to slug through the brush. So we spent a really hard day of work building trail and then the next week, we came back and did the same thing again. So we created that nice trail that went up there. Then when it didn't open, we decided we've made some progress. We've, con- we've controlled some bad weeds. We've recovered some er- eroded land and stuff. Let's don't let it go back to wild. Let's keep doing it every so often. So we'd go up there about two or three times, sometimes four times a year, and get a volunteer group of anywhere from 25 to 35, depending on how much work needed to be done. And then flash forward to just a couple of years ago when I know, I think the Board of Water Supply said no, that they didn't want the group going up there Uh, because of liability. It it always had been under the auspices of Board of Water Supply, but we didn't know that. And we were getting permission from Parks and Recreation, who had actually no actual Mm. right to give us that permission. But then when the Board of Water Supply found out that they were in charge they just shut it down. Oh, my goodness, we're scared. We're going to get sued. This is terrible. So they shut us off. They said, well, you can't go unless you have a million dollars insurance. Okay, so we've looked around, and we found an insurance company that would back us, and, and they gave us a million dollars insurance. And Border Water Supply still wouldn't let us go in. 
So that kind of stymied us. There was not much we could do from that point. You know, we are where we are today. We're, we're, <laughs> right. we're, we're back debating whether these stairs should be torn down uh, or opened up for recreational users. We've had this debate so many times, and we still have it again, and the comments from everybody are always the same. There's nothing new. We just do it over and over and over. I wonder, I, I'd like to figure out sometime, try to see maybe if I could estimate, how many man hours, how many person hours have been involved in our meeting with the legislators, with the Board of Water Supply, with the city? Yeah, well, if you were paid for all that, you'd, you'd be a rich man. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon. You'd be counting all your money. <laughs> oh, my, wouldn't that be fun? All I'd right. Rather, I'd rather go back to counting the steps, trying to figure out how many steps there are there. Okay. I hope that uh, folks can at least appreciate all the effort that the community has expended over the many decades just to see this thing through. Well, right now, at least, everybody's all excited about it, so we're getting a little more publicity. Maybe people will start paying attention. All right. Well, thank you so much, John Flanagan. Thank you, Catherine. All right. Aloha. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. That was John Flanagan, one of the early organizers of a group that would become the Friends of Haiku Stairs. That's our show for today. Up tomorrow, we learn about the local architect behind the haiku stairs, a.k.a. the stairway to heaven. Think you got a solution to the dilemma there in the Kotlaus? What's your opinion on the issue? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.